You are listening to Panther Tracks. Because of the following special program, Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. Star Wars news in a single file. This is Making Tracks. Here are your hosts, Mark Newbold and Mark Lowcaster. That's not true. That's impossible. You're listening to Making Tracks. This is episode 37. I'm your co-host, Mark Newbold, and joining me today is a man who literally defies description. Mark, introduce yourself, please. Well, you just said it. I defy <laughs> description. So I'm, I'm lost. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> what can we say? What can we? I mean, if this was a video, it would, it would all be there for us. But it isn't. We're rolling through the lockdown with loads and loads of news, and it's a particularly busy episode today. We're going to talk about the uh, Tamura Morrison rumours about him coming back into live-action Star Wars. We'll talk about Father's from Twenty Two and Rebelthon. There's all the great news about Taika Waititi coming on board a live-action Star Wars film, and. How can we not talk about Disney Gallery and all the great things that Dave Filoni said? Where should we start, Mark? What would you like to talk about? I think we should start with Mr. Fett, the, the hot topic at the moment. It mega is. I mean, Hollywood Reporter put the news out and uh, late one evening and everyone suddenly, the internet as it does, t- totally exploded. Half went left, half went right. Which camp are you in? I mean, uh, uh, there's, there's different ways you can play this one. Tem's played more than one character. He has played more than one character. I think it would be kind of cool if it was Fett, but also at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks that if they were going to hint at Fett, would they have done it slightly more obviously than just to Spurs? Can sound because I've been looking at the Gunslinger episode, trying to figure out actually if he's wearing the same costume or not, and it doesn't look like he's wearing the same footwear at least. It doesn't seem to be the toe spikes. Yeah. I've not had a chance to actually take the episode and kind of run it through my kind of colour suite to see if I can kind of increase the, the brightness and, and get more out of the image because that image was graded really dark and I think that was one reason for doing it. It's clearly a, a tease to who, at the point, we don't necessarily know. Like you said, um, the more eagle-eared fans will possibly think it is fair. It's not been confirmed by Lucasfilm. No. And that's always... It's, so it's always harder to kind of like know exactly when when even even with a hollywood reporter who have got a good track record but when they just use that generic sources have confirmed or sources say it makes it harder to have confidence in the news if it is it's great i'm quite a a fet fan and if it isn't and they do something even better or even more different well then i'm totally open and up for that as well what do you think i think well i mean we talked about it before we started recording. Boba Fett's one of those characters that had very little screen time, but his legend of, of what he does and, and the, the way he carries himself and the work that he did as a bounty hunter is bigger than what you saw on the screen. So you could take people who look at it literally and go, well, he wasn't that big of a deal, was he? Look at, you know, everything he did in Empire was overseen by Vader and everything he did in Return of the Jedi was, was not the best representation of, of Boba Just Fett. Just a fail. Uh, Epic fail. It's slightly funny, actually. When you look at how one of the key things with The Last Jedi was to set up this legend and legacy of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. 
and they tried so hard to do that. They they did that also with um, the, some of the supporting books for the journey to the Last Jedi. Boba Fett has kind of done that organically, mm. just by the very nature of who he is. I mean, like you say, I I can remember I was out in the USA. I think in like ninety four, ninety five for the first time. Yeah. And I picked up the Boba Fett Dark Horse comics yeah. and I thought they were great. And there was such a kind of like mystique and uniqueness behind them. I, I agree with that. I think he's, his legend overtook the reality of what you saw on the screen. But I don't think that's a bad thing because, you know, you could argue Han Solo as a, as a comparative character. OK, you see way more of Han. He's more integral to the plot in the films in a family way later on as well as in a sort of a, a plot thing. Because in, in original Star Wars, he's kind of... He doesn't come in for like the first 45 minutes. He's not a key player. You've met Luke, you've met Leia, you've met Obi-Wan, you've met Vader. You've met all the key players and then Han Solo, you know, kind of comes into the story in the cantina. Han Solo's the guy that's telling you, I'm the best pilot, I'm the best gunman, I'm the best smuggler. He's telling you everything. You don't really see him do much, that much smuggling. You see him pilot, so you know he's a good pilot, there's no doubt, and Solo, the film completely backs that up. He will tell you he's the best at this, that and the other. Boba Fett is a man of few words, and I hope that's something that they stick to if and when he comes back. But I think one thing you can look at in terms of Fett, Boba Fett, is you've only got to look back to Attack of the Clones and realise he's a clone of his father who, okay, a few tweaks, he ages differently and such, but he's a clone of Django. We saw Django take on a, a Jedi and get away uh, in, in Obi-Wan and Kamino. Okay, things didn't end so well with Mace Windu, but of course... You saw the Reek took his jetpack out, so he lost an option, a battle option straight away that he had against Obi-Wan. So you don't know how he would have done if his jetpack hadn't have failed. So you know Django's very capable. Logically, Boba Fett would be to that level. You kind of do know to a degree how good Boba Fett would be, but you didn't ever really see him in action on the screen. So like you just said, all that Legends material, what what we now call Legends material, all those Boba Fett comics, Bounty on Barcuda, all the stuff, you know, all the all the little one-shots you got back in Dark Horse Presents, and then Tales of the Bounty Hunters mm. and all that sort of stuff, Shadows of the Empire, all builds up this legend of Boba Fett. Fett now is looked at in the same way that a lot of the EU characters, a lot of the literary and comic characters were. Boba Fett almost feels like he's, he's camped in with... Okay, Thrawn's a bad example because now he's coming to canon with with rebels. But you know what I mean? Like he's kind of in that in that conversation with like Mara Jade and all these characters. Yeah. So I think people like us who've, who've been following it since you know way early, Boba Fett is right up there. He's always top of the readers' polls and like throughout the nineties, it was him and Mara Jade, wasn't it? You know, and and he's one mm, of those yeah. characters. He's he's a top tier character for doing really on screen relatively little. I really want him to come back to see him kick-ass big time to kind of rectify that in live action so it'd be interesting to see how they play it yeah i think on one hand you could say that boba fett for the mandalorian series is low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. it's something that's very easy to kind of like make that connection and you know let's not forget that chapter five the gunslinger was set on tatooine so it's feasible he could have had such you know bad injuries from you know the Sarlacc from you know from him escaping the Sarlacc that maybe he's actually had to spend quite a long time yeah kind of recuperating like, recover yeah. Yeah, recuperating and also then you know maybe getting some armor yeah there's also that option as like you said every single clone is from the same cast as Boba Fett yeah. maybe it's not Boba Fett maybe it's a clone that has taken on the Boba Fett Django Fett kind of moniker and um 
is just living out for, for twilight years as a bounty hunter. The clones have got to do something once they retire. Yeah. I don't imagine they get much of a pension yeah. from the Empire. Good point. I mean, of course, he could come back as Boba. He could come back as Rex. And, and you know, all the rumours of Rosario Dawson coming into The Mandalorian Season 2 as Ahsoka. If he does come back as Rex, there's a lot of logic in that. But, of course... I, I literally last night, you know, watched Revenge of the Sith on Sky Movies. I've not seen the film since the Siege of Mandalore, so it kind of did add another wrinkle to watching the film, which was really cool and worthwhile. But if Ahsoka does come into the storyline, and there is that angle, live action Ahsoka and, and other potential stuff going on from there, and Filoni kind of said it in a deadline interview over the weekend, you know, that you've seen the end of Rebels, you've seen the end of the Clone Wars, there won't be another season of Rebels, but there may be more with those characters. And of course, now at the end yeah. of, of the Clone Wars, you kind of cast your mind forward to Rebels, which is already ended, so you cast your mind even further down the timeline to the end of Rebels with Ahsoka and Sabine, and you're thinking, well, is there stuff there? And you kind of know Rex is still around in the Rebels era, but this is another sort of 10 years on. But, you know, there's loads of options. I'm, I'm excited for it. I think it could be fantastic if he does come into it. Hi, I'm Toby Jetson, and you're listening to Panther Tracks. Personally speaking, I don't want to put you massively on the spot, how credible do you think this rumour is? As soon as the rumour came out, and we're all in different chat groups and chat rooms and stuff on Facebook and socials, quite a few people came out and said, ah, finally, I've known about this since January. And, you know, so there was quite a few people I saw sort of, and, I, and they're all American-based and sort of California-based as well, so sure. which is where they film it. But they weren't saying, ah, yes, finally, to it being Boba Fett. They were going, ah, yes, finally, to it being Tamura Morrison. And our very own Adam from Fanta Down Under, straight away, I go into a thread online saying, I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Fett could make it through the Sarlacc explosion and all that stuff. That's quite more than feasible. You can chop Darth Maul in half and people pull a face that Boba Fett's coming back with, with his skills and armour. Yeah, he would. He had an off day. It didn't kill him. But... You know, canonically on screen, you saw him go into the mouth of the Sarlacc, Sarlacc burps, and there he goes. You know, we know how big and deep a Sarlacc is under... It's like an iceberg, isn't it? You know, you're only seeing the mouth, so it's a monstrous thing. I think Fett would have got out. And I think yeah. George had said way back when he thought Fett had got out, he just never got George. around to doing anything with it, so... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, George, George said that. And he, I mean, he even said that, like, fairly recently in the last couple of years. Yeah. But then I suppose actually at this point in time, he doesn't own the company no. and he can say whatever he likes, really. Of course he can. I mean, we'll come, we'll come, back, to, we'll come back to that, won't we, when we talk about Disney Gallery and what Dave Filoni said? Because, I mean, that, that, yeah. tying the two together, it's like, it, it seems pretty clear that, okay, George turning up on set, a few sound bites, nodding a wink and a point in the le- off camera to the left sort of thing makes it look like he's on set all the time and he isn't. But he clearly, from what has been said, has conversations with Filoni so you saying about him, okay, he's not involved and he's not in charge, which is true, of course, still a major Disney shareholder, so he has some sway. Uh, and Absolutely. I, you know, and I think if, if George ever sort of really felt passionately about a storyline or, or an aspect of it, especially now, sort of seven or eight years after he sold the company, which you kind of forget it's that long, I think they would respect that. You know, if he was passionate, like, you are not showing Yoda's species. We never found out what species Yoda was from. We never went to his home world we don't go there, or maybe this is the story that they were saving it for. I just kind of think that they would pay some heat to that. As you say, when you watch a gallery, there's so much respect from everybody around those two roundtables for George and for what he created. It would be hard, I would imagine, for the creatives to kind of like go against maybe his wishes. But I suppose you have got that business and and you have the other shareholders and you have what 
the company, like the overarching Disney company, may want. And if they've got something in mind and they're really pushing it, I suppose it it will be that kind of like the meat of, you know, the two different kind of perspectives, you know, who who has final say. I suppose ultimately that's what it comes down to. Who has a final say? And I suppose if the CEO for Disney kind of turns around and says, no, we need you to do this, then irrespective of George's uh, wishes, they might have to do it. Who knows? I mean, you'd like to think that probably the creators in, in charge of Lucasfilm are clever enough and savvy enough to work around that kind of stuff and be diplomatic about things. But we've also seen in the past where George's wishes possibly weren't respected so much. So That's true. Well, we've took a bit of a left turn in, in our conversation and we've mentioned Disney Gallery. Yes. We might as well talk, talk about we it. We might as well talk about it now. So Disney Gallery, Why not? first two episodes have come out. Episode one, looking at directors. Episode two, looking at legacy. Second episode, reviews coming on the site very shortly. Episode one, reviews already out there. I was blown away by it. I, it wasn't what I expected. The tone of it, the the presentation of it, it, it's, it was very cool in the sense that having Favreau lead the table, like he used to do a show that was on YouTube years ago called Table for Five. I don't know if you remember it. Very kind yes, of I similar. Do, yeah. It's a brilliant show, and it was a similar kind of vibe to that. So it's a it's a formula that works for him. That first episode, directors. Obviously, you've got all your lead directors from season one of The Mandalorian. They didn't skimp on letting you know how important to the process Filoni is and his knowledge and his sensibilities. And that kind of brings you to the second episode, Legacy, where you've got some of them around the table again. And Dave gives this phenomenal talk at the end of the episode about why the through line from Phantom Menace to Return of the Jedi works so beautifully. We don't need to go into that. People can listen to it and hear it for themselves. There's no way I could summarise, or you, we couldn't summarise what he said. No. As we couldn't just couldn't say it as well as no, he said just, it. There's no point. Yeah. But to know that he's got that, that view on Star Wars and that he comes directly from George, how does that make you feel as a fan more than anything else, knowing that he's tapped into this source, if you like? And, and like we've just said about the Tamira Morrison and the Boba Fett stuff, you know, George still has influence. Yeah, yeah. I've, for, I mean, for me, as a, as a Star Wars fan, it fills me with confidence and it, it fills me with a certain level of kind of warmth that there is a voice in the company like, like Dave Filoni who is able to kind of say, well, this is, this is what George said. This was George's take. You know, let's not forget that George himself was very much open to the whole sandbox idea of actually getting different directors and different creative voices yeah. in to the Star Wars universe to play around with things. To be honest, I think the Favreau Filoni team seems to work really well. There's a, a reverence without it being scared to maybe challenge the status quo, but at the same time, they're very respectful. I think that's what we need in Star Wars, really. And this has nothing to do with you know any commentary on, say, The Last Jedi or the sequel trilogy at all, but I think this is very much the kind of genesis for The Mandalorian, having these five different directors almost. Yeah. And actually having like Bryce Dallas Howard, who hasn't really directed much, or Dave Filoni, who hasn't directed live action, getting these people into the mix and actually giving them the chance to carve out individual episodes that work as a kind of a whole story, but also, you know, have a different take on different genres per episode is kind of what I think they possibly wanted to kind of do with the last five years of cinematic films. Yeah. But it just, I think the stakes were too high and the pressure was too much, and it didn't quite work. On the scale of a Mandalorian, it's a much smaller scoped story that works really well. Yeah, 
That's a great point. That's a really good point. I mean, it seems to have worked. I mean, obviously, Taika, we'll talk about him in a minute, but Taika's an mm. uh, experienced director, and Deborah Chow obviously just blew everyone's socks off coming from television where she did to the point that she's directing season one of Kenobi. Rick from a year is coming back for season two of Mando, I believe. And so, you know, it's it's worked with everybody doing what they've done. It makes me wonder, and this isn't a criticism, it's an observation, but it makes me wonder, looking back now, you bring JJ in to do Force Awakens, and he's a big-name director. He's got Bad Robot behind him. He's a genre guy in that sense. And also, already at that point, he'd done Mission Impossible 3, proving he could pick up the mission films and, and give them their own flavour and, and do what he did with them. He'd already done Star Trek well, the first two Star Treks, proving he could pick up that franchise and do it well. And he'd done Super 8, which is basically a Spielberg film. So so I think he was the right guy. You know, he's got his own ideas and he's got his own style and, and feel and vibe and he brings all the fandom he does from television. But he felt like the right guy. But obviously then you can go to, into the weeds about all the other directorial choices. Obviously, Josh Trank came out last week and, and sort of talked about his project that didn't happen and for various for reasons. Fair project, yeah. Exactly, you know, and that's that could be relevant to the conversation in, in, in many ways. Other than George being a writer-director in Star Wars, it is a difficult path to tread because I do feel that Star Wars, of all the franchises, kind of does need the director directing in his lane, doing his thing, the producer producing in their lane, doing their thing, and the writers working collaboratively. And that's where the story group always felt like a great idea in terms of of continuity and and a sort of a through line of plot and just thoughts and ideas and then working with a writer to to formulate the story and then yeah bring the director in and make everything cohesive and work it as a team but having a writer director it's almost like well this is my vision of star wars yeah it's a singular voice absolutely and it's like unless it's george and of course George is 76 this year, I think. You know, if he hadn't have retired by now, he would have retired anyway. He's, you know, he's he's probably done with all of that. And he won't be around forever, because who is? In the same way that they've very successfully picked up other composers to do great music. John Powell, who personally, in my opinion, did the best Star Wars soundtrack since Phantom Menace with Solo and... You know, Giacchino. Michael doing, Giacchino, yeah. Absolutely, you know. So they've, they've done that. They've done it with the music, which is vitally important, but with directors have not quite nailed it and i think because it's star wars because it is kind of its own thing you can't lump star wars in with star trek or other sci-fi you can't lump star wars in with willow and D and other fantasy and game of thrones Lord of rings yeah. it's its own thing star wars it's now 40 years in is its own thing so it does need that you know hand steering the ship sort of thing and i don't think mm. giving it to writer directors is the way to do it it's not it just feels know, like it's yeah. got to be more controlled than that in a, in a good sense, in a creative sense, not in a hindrance. Yeah. You need somebody at the top, figuratively, shall we say. A Kevin Feige character. Kind of, yeah, but I was trying to kind of make that comparison without bringing up Kevin Feige because that's where the obvious yeah. go-to kind of person. But I suppose it's, it's that kind of similar voice. You kind of need somebody at the top who's able to kind of go, right, okay, well, this is where we're, we're going. This is the through line for these characters how they get from A to B to C, the actual story beats and stuff like that, it's going to be more down to the, the writers yeah. and the directors. I mean, it's, it's curious, actually, because if you think about it, and um, I said this to somebody else the other day, who you know, says, oh, you know, the worst thing that has happened for Star Wars is that Disney brought it off of George. I go, yeah, but let's be fair. If George still owned a company, possibly we would have had episode seven and probably episode eight by now yeah. but we'll still be waiting for episode nine yeah 
and we wouldn't have had Rogue One. We wouldn't have had Solo. We probably wouldn't have had Rebels you know, or Resistance, the Mandalorian. Yeah, yeah, Rebels or Resistance, or the Mandalorian. Yeah. And also, you know, controversially, and people sit on one side of the fence or the other. We wouldn't have had like the reclassification of expanded universe, yeah. which kind of was unfortunately sorely needed something to happen because it was just starting to trail on a little bit. Yeah. Whereas we've had this opportunity to go back and to have new authors come in and, and write their stories yeah. for things that actually we thought as fans we may have known what was happened, but actually we've just had one take. I mean, when you, when you talk about that, I can remember, I think it may have been Tim Fizan or Michael Stackpole kind of said, maybe it been like a San Diego Comic-Con uh, panel a few years back, when you write for a franchise when you, you you're asked to write a star trek novel or a star wars novel you know that you are writing and you're creating characters that aren't owned by you ultimately their fate and what happens to them isn't actually down to the author yeah. and i think almost that mentality needs to slightly happen yeah. with the, the films yeah. and coming back to the gallery like you said you could see that george was on set and there was enough kind of footage of him that i think was probably done as a confidence boyer yeah for, for the disenfranchised for those who are like oh it's a disney star wars live action series it's going to be crap and as soon as you see george holding like baby yoda or you, you see just george on set automatically makes people go Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, if he's on board, then I can at least watch this with an open mind. Yeah. Hi, this is Gareth Edwards, director of the best standalone Star Wars film since Caravan of Courage called Rogue One. You're listening to Panther Tracks. Enjoy. When the rumours came around before the sale happened, I remember talking to a bunch of, I won't name them because don't want to break confidences, but talked to a bunch of people in the know who knew that he'd put it up for sale, but they didn't know who he was going to sell it to. And, and that you know, there was like companies in China were being talked about and then like NBC was being talked about and companies like that, Universal was being talked about. But then the logical head says, it's got to be Disney, isn't it? You know, the whole ABC connection with Young Indy and all the other, all exactly, the other stuff yeah. and, and Star Tours and, and everything. So it was, it's the right home in that sense. But... And I, I still think if George hadn't have sold it, like you just said, he was working on Seven anyway, and I think the original plan was to make Seven, then sell it. But then Disney were like, no, we really like this, we want it now. And George was like, fine, okay. I mean, a lot of people say, and this is the polarising nature of social media, which we really shouldn't pay anywhere near as much attention to as we do. Pay no attention. None at all. <laughs> no attention. It's just people <laughs> shouting loudly in a glass box, really, isn't it? But Lucasfilm wouldn't have continued without Disney buying it. I personally call BS on that. I think Lucasfilm would have continued. You'd have had a lot less content. You wouldn't have had, like you just mentioned, all the shows and films that you just mentioned, most of them wouldn't have happened. You probably would have had a sequel. Well, Clone Wars would have finished it on its own back in 2013, 2014, and, and what we're yeah. seeing now would have been done five or six years ago at least. You would have probably had a sequel series, which may or may not have been Rebels. You probably wouldn't have had Resistance. You may well have had a live action show, but it wouldn't have been The Mandalorian. It probably would have been Underworld. So you would have had similar stuff, but different because of the technology and the money coming down. I mean, Disney Gallery, when Kathleen Kennedy is at the table and says, you know, one thing that amazed me was that Lucasfilm and George have created, what was it, 126 patents? Yeah, 126 you know? patents. Yeah. yeah, you know, so for, and that's all for tech and like they start reeling it off in you know, all the different um, technological advances that Lucasfilm and Skywalker and, and everything else and, you know, Sprocket Systems before Skywalker and the graphics group before Pixar and all the stuff they've done. Incredible stuff that George gets no credit for outside of 
the industry that works with this stuff every day. And you'll know, you work in the industry, there's stuff you use that's probably come from that, that lineage. Oh, yeah, the whole of Sky edits on Avid. Yeah. And we've always edited. It's awesome. And just that in itself yeah. is kind of cool. So, But I think, so. Scott, I think what would have happened, this is my, <laughs> way off into the weeds now, I think what would have happened is Lucasfilm would have probably remained an independent film company, but, but they would have had backers come in. There would have been some kind of funding source that would have come in. So there would have become more of a partnership rather than being bought, i.e. Marvel going into completely into Disney and Pixar being bought by Disney. I think what would have happened is Lucasfilm would have continued as an independent company, but there would have been funding sources backing it, and that would have been borne out by, well, if NBC backs this series, then that show goes on NBC, and if somebody else backs this series, then that goes on to Netflix, or whatever it may be. That's how the way I think it would have happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, although I think the problem that we would have had... It's probably still the, the vast cost that some of these TV series were, you know, reportedly yeah. going to cost. And I don't think really prior to Game of Thrones, a channel would be willing to put down that kind of money unless they knew it was certain it was going to do well. Yeah. And with Star Wars at the time, it wasn't going to be, you know, um, a sure thing. You know, the next series that was going to be released was Detours. Yeah. And that was, you know, a complete departure from anything that we'd seen from Star Wars. And it was kind of satirical in its very nature yeah. and you know, we had kind of seen that we'd seen the family guy and we seen the robot chicken yeah. episodes and so you kind of saw the kind of the shift from what star wars was yeah. to what they were thinking star wars was going to be in the future something that they could you know make light of and all that kind of yeah, stuff good point. um I, I think for instance one of the reasons why they were able to make the mandalorian look so amazing was because of the stagecraft technology totally what we saw of it actually in those two episodes of the gallery was actually, yeah, those those sets looked massive on screen when we saw them in the final thing. But actually, like, some of those sets weren't very big. No. You know, you just had that screen and bits and bobs. It was almost like if you were to kind of go back to 1999 or 2000, yeah. you could almost imagine that stagecraft screen would have just been blue screen. Yeah. And it probably would have looked something very similar to how they shot Attack of the Clones. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point. And, and it, again, I mean, I don't know who owns the proprietary, you know, the patent for uh, Stagecraft. I don't know who that's who came up with that. It's not doesn't matter. The, our guys are using it first, and you kind of look at it and go, well, that totally is going to be how they do future, not only future Star Wars, but future television. Yeah. And it goes back to sort of 2007, 2008, when Lucas was talking about building the Grady Ranch and had all the all the locals kicking off and, you know, because he wanted to build a volume like Cameron did Avatar in a volume, but not a stagecraft mm. volume. I mean, that is just something else. And Disney Gallery has really given us a great insight into how they're making this show. And we've got, still got six episodes to go, which I'm, I'm stoked about. Uh, I can't yeah. imagine what else we're going to see. And, I, and and also, I don't think anybody knew this was coming. So this was such a sweet surprise. Everybody's saying, oh, as soon as Mandalorian Episode 8 is on, and as soon as Clone Wars Episode 12 is on, I'm cancelling my Disney Plus subscription. Well, more fool you, because it, exactly. it's worth it for this. Yeah, I think so. There's a part of me that kind of watched these two episodes. I was kind of thinking... Is this the equivalency of like the documentaries we get on the, the Blu-ray discs, yeah. on the, the bonus features? Because there's a part of me that thinks that we probably won't get a physical Blu-ray quote-unquote release of The Mandalorian. Yeah. And so this is kind of like your bonus extras. Yes. What they've done is they've obviously filmed this and they've, they've kind of said, you know, there's enough here. We can break this down into eight differently themed episodes that will actually hold general audiences' interest. Whereas... 
put it on as a bonus disc on a Blu-ray. And it's only really people of a certain interest who will go to that. Yeah. Really, let's be fair. So... I think that there was a certain behind-the-scenes feel that kind of made it feel really natural and authentic, which I really liked yeah. about it. And also that, you know, it's going that little bit deeper into the production process. And for me, I'm all about the process. As somebody, obviously, like you said, who works in the industry, Matt, I'm always curious as to how different production companies and different creatives approach projects. So anything that I can see... And anything I can learn about the creative process is always going to be fascinating to me. Hello, this is Sam Whitmer, and you are listening to Fanta Tracks. Last weekend, the weekend of May the 4th, Farthest from 22 changed from being a physical let's get together in the room and spend lots of money event down in Fordingbridge in the New Forest to an online event. And Dave Tree and his team pulled together conversations, games and quizzes and panels and talks, all sorts of wonderful stuff. Uh, We were both involved. Did you enjoy yourself, Mark? Because I certainly did. I had fun. It was great. It was really good. And I think there's a uniqueness behind what Dave offers anyway. I always appreciate getting down to Father's From and all the stuff that I tend to do with Dave when he invites the Rebel Legion and UK Garrison along to his events. It was nice. And I think also... You know, you had to put some serious thought into actually kind of creating some really engaging content that was going to run for that period of time. And I think he pulled it off really well. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. It's tougher than you think. And and he pulled it around and turned it around in sort of two or three weeks. I don't think it was even that long. We had the opportunity to catch up with a couple of guests. We spoke to Brian Herring and we spoke to Anthony Daniels. Here's a couple of minutes of me and Anthony Daniels talking at Farthest From 22 Live. Is it like muscle memory? Because you're, we talked about this before, the, all the pinch points and such makes the posture the way it was. But when you're out of the costume, inherently, do you kind of know where the where the bite point is for the elbows and such? Yeah, it is muscle memory. As with rehearsing to pick something up, say the the binders in that same uh, in that control room. At one point, Mark says, "You know, hand me the binders." Now, the only way I could pick them up was to have rehearsed before we were shooting to know where my elbow and my hand had to be because yeah. I'm flying blind there. I'm not, it looks like I can see them, but I can't. So muscle memory is really important. And, you know, after, after a period of time, you get used to it. I suppose your spatial awareness goes, doesn't it, when you're looking through pinpricks? Spatial awareness, sense of um, perspective, sense yeah. of location, it all goes. No peripheral vision means that if you're standing next to me, normally I'd be able to see peripherally, but with the three PO, next time you see a horse with blinkers on, it's me. Yeah. Not literally, I, I don't play horses, but uh, <laughs> so I have to know somebody who's there in order to clock them directly. Otherwise, three PO would spend the whole time uh, like a, a, a blind person f- uh, feeling for where people are. We also had the chance to talk to Brian Herring about his time uh, as BB-8, but also about his interests as a collector. But just to have a little bit of a different conversation was really cool. I think it was really nice to be able to tie kind of both interviews into the whole vintage thing. I mean, Anthony did that whole kind of show and tell with his props and that, which of course is really fascinating because we know where they've come from. You know, especially for me, who's, and I don't mean to rub it in, I promise, a little bit younger than both you and Brian, it's always fascinating listening to how people uh, reacted to Star Wars when they first saw it in the cinema and also, um, you know, that first initial wave of um, merchandise that yeah. people started to buy and, you know, you guys played with and stuff. 
I got mine later on because I got mine kind of like second hand from the neighbours' kids who had kind of grown out of Star Wars. And my mum was just like, oh, well, we'll have it. At that point, it was still kind of like, these are just toys. But it's it's really nice to listen back to the fond memories of like, you know, of what Brian says and what you say, Matt. So it's, it was a nice, fun interview. It's fine. I'm not insulted at all. I don't think of you as yeah. being younger than me. I'm far from it. I'm not. No, <laughs> not really. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, no it, was, it was good fun. It was really good fun. And also for people who listen to Making Tracks, we recorded an exclusive mini episode of Making Tracks that you can only hear on the uh, For This One feed. So if you want to hear us rabbit on about Star Wars for half an hour, that's the place you need to go. It's a special episode that you can only get there. Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith, a Star Wars fan. The Tracks fan. Now, as well as that, you were involved in another event that was happening that weekend, Rebelthon. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, the Rebelthon took place on the uh, same weekend as Father's From. This was a um, a charity fundraiser, as I think you may have heard my um, Legion Commanding Officer come on a couple of weeks ago and kind of explain it all. This was kind of in the similar kind of vein to the, you know, the earlier 1980s kind of telephones that you used to get out. More in the States. But we did have some over here. Um, and I suppose we still do, really. We still get, like, children yeah. in need and that. Comic and relief. that was... Exactly, and comic relief. And, and both of those were pretty much telephones, really. I can remember, actually, you had banks of celebrities kind of sat there with really big, chunky phones, and, <laughs> you know, taking donations from the public and yeah. all that. But yeah, so this was kind of like a, um, a slightly different kind of um, take. This was kind of like, a, again, an online kind of convention. At the same time, we were raising money for, for UNICEF throughout the whole feed. And that feed, I think, went on for about 14 or 16 hours in the end. It was meant to be 12, but we got so many different guests from cast and crew from the Star Wars productions that we just kept on kind of like expanding it. We had people like Vanessa Marshall drop in. I spoke to Garrick Hagen in a pre-recorded interview, which was fun and really fascinating but what was great was, uh, yeah, we um, we raised over eleven thousand dollars for for UNICEF, which is just great, you know. And again, put together in a really short period of time, I believe. So both fathers from and the Rebel Fund just shows kind of like the ingenuity and the creative thinking from from Star Wars fans and the Star Wars community how to overcome the problems we have with lockdown at the moment, which I think is very positive and very heartwarming and just kind of something that I think we should all be proud of going into the future. Absolutely, yeah. It feels like right now that these online events is is the immediate future for fandom, isn't it? The, this is how we're going to consume our, our events and our big reveals and, uh, you know, we're probably not going to be all getting together in a room anytime soon, but uh, we shall only make it sweeter when we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait for that to happen. But at the same time, I think it's great that actually the access to having so many cast and crew members has never been easier yeah. because of like the likes of Zoom and, and FaceTime and you know House Party and all these other different social media apps. And we've got to remember that actually, yeah, a lot of these cast and crew members are, you know, men and women who are basically sat in their home locked down, you know, as well. So therefore they love the opportunity to engage with fans and, and talk to fans about, about stuff. And, it, you know, and, and some of those conversations on the Rebel Fund yeah, sure, they touched on Star Wars, but also they just went off in all different directions. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, how the, the lockdown is affecting everyone. So I think it was quite a positive thing for them as well, not only for, for us to kind of like raise the money, but just for them to be able to engage with the fans. Hot damn! This is Darth Elvis and Darth Elvis and Imperials. I'm proud to be a part of the Fat Attack family, let me tell you. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook and on Twitter, Instagram, and check out the website, fanfortracks.com, baby. 
So the final episode of the first season of The Mandalorian was directed by Taika Waititi, who a lot of people will know from Jojo Rabbit, Oscar-nominated, and from Thor Ragnarok, which is probably my favourite Marvel film. And now the news has come that he will be uh, taking the helm of a live-action Star Wars movie at some point in the future. I'm buzzed about it because I think he's hilarious and I like what he does on screen. How do you feel about that one, Mark? When I first saw Thor Ragnarok... I kind of wasn't sold on the whole change in creative direction with regards to like the character, but I'm literally actually because of lockdown now about two films away from having done the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe in order. Oh, wicked! Which is quite fun. In retrospect, I kind of do feel like actually that was a, a good pivot for the character. But you know, uh, Marvel to one side, I thought Jojo Rabbit it had a lot of heart and a lot of soul. To something that was quite a slightly dark and kind of like black comedy kind of feel to it and I mean it just worked really well and I think you know maybe if you had said to me back when um in 2017 when after Ragnarok had come out this chap's going to possibly write and direct a Star Wars film or what have you I would be a little bit more kind of like uh, I'm not too sure about that because I think the tone might not be quite right but actually I think the fit is possibly going to be about right. And obviously, having seen what he's been able to do on The Mandalorian, I've, I'm not anything but excited yeah, for it. Absolutely the same. I think he's got a slightly left of centre skew F vibe about what he does, which I loved about Ragnarok. I love the. I mean, I like Ragnarok because visually it kind of it had that Guardians of the Galaxy feel about it. And I've said before, I think mm. if, if I wasn't a Star Wars fan, as deeply into Star Wars as I am, other fandoms that I would get into, I'd be I'd be nuts about Harry Potter. I'd always be a Trek fan. I love my indie. But Guardians of the Galaxy felt like the new, best, fresh, new thing that's come along in, in an absolute age. And I love both of the films. So Ragnarok kind of had that multicolour, vibrant, sort of busy, Mobius feel about it, which I loved. You know, and yeah. it was just busy and so many things going on. But it had that great... And colourful. And colourful, exactly. And it had that great yeah. sense of humour. And, you know, it had a wry sense of humour and slightly, you know, just a bit... I mean, you say about Thor. I mean, it's funny, I watched Age of Ultron again the other day, which is, I think, quite an underrated Marvel entry. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise how funny Thor is in Age of Ultron. It's quite funny going back and seeing it, having not seen it for a good long while. There's bits, there's things wrong with that film. There's things that don't quite flow right. James Spade is phenomenal. He could read the phone book. He's got one of those voices. But, but you know, <laughs> and Ultron's a great character, and he always was in the comics. But to see Thor, I'd forgotten how funny he is in Ultron, and that only gets escalated massively by the time you get to Ragnarok, which I think, if I remember, kind of takes place around about the same time as Civil War. So, you know, it was just really cool to see that element and I'm a Hitchhikers fan and Hitchhikers is by nature a bit sort of a bit sort of Monty Python a bit sort of weird and sort of surrealist it's, and it's irreverent isn't it? mega That's irreverent it. like completely yeah. irreverent and so to see or to think that he's going to bring elements of that and we might be under, we might be underselling he might just want to do it a straight down the line Star Wars action film you know and very much within the Oh, and this is a whole other conversation of do you want Star Wars to have a template? Going back to what Filoni said about the thread from Phantom to, to Return of the Jedi was beautiful. But one thing you don't want is to box in what Star Wars can be, so, which is why I did a review on the site the other day of um, John Hicks, who does our roleplay stuff. Years ago when I was doing Lightsaber, did a review of Tales from Jabba's Palace. But he reviewed all yeah. three of the short storybooks in one review, and I wanted to break them into their own individual reviews. Well, he said the least about Tales from Jabba's Palace. So I went back and sort of flicked through the book and found some sort of notes on it online and kind of refreshed my memory on the book, so I didn't have time to read the whole thing again. And remembered enough that I could write 
a, a sort of a second part of the review. And one of the things I put in there was it was nice with Star Wars that you can do these great big galactic mega mega stories like the Skywalker saga, but you can also tell these small one-on-one sort of two-player stories as well, and it's still Star Wars, just as Star Wars as anything else. You know, I, you know, I, I dream of the day that somebody does a live-action Star Wars episode set in a bar with just two characters sitting at the bar talking. Because I think it could be fascinating if they did it right. You know, you could do with these double-headers. It doesn't have to be about hero's journey all the time and, you know, and all these sort of things that people keep tagging these tenants onto Star Wars that constrict it. And I think the thing about Star Wars mm. is you want to you want to open it up to all these different possibilities of storytelling. So I think Tyker coming in with a weird... That's what Hassel, I think he might do it just like looking at it from the from the side on sideways on instead of straight on. I think it could be brilliant. I think if we were to take a step back, I think Tyker would, would have possibly have been great director to have done the solo movies. Oh yeah. That's a good I think, call. Yeah. Just because I, I think you kind of get that. I mean, because there was a couple of points in Ragnarok that I was like, they're literally right on the cusp of um breaking like the fourth wall. Yeah. But they don't because they, they do like the gag when he's in the cage and yep. you think he's kind of talking to the audience, but he's just talking to some skeletons and right. stuff like that. Yeah. I, and I think that's a great way of just kind of like pushing that fourth wall. So it starts to bend a little bit, but it doesn't actually break. Um, and I think actually that would be quite fun. I mean, obviously, obviously sometimes, and we've commented about, say, for instance, Last Jedi, uh, sometimes the, the humour in that was a little bit too self-aware. Yeah. So that's possibly a risk. But again, from what from the way he spoke in the gallery from the two episodes we've seen, he's you know very respectful of of what Star Wars is, and I think also what Star Wars means to people as well. Again, it's it's the difference. That's why I'm enjoying that gallery thing so much. You said it earlier. Everyone at that table respects Star Wars and respects what George laid out. And I think Tyker went into that a little bit, didn't he? You know, he sort of talked about it. Mm. I mean, for only everyone's talking about what Dave said, but you know, Dave's been inside baseball for 15 years now he's had he worked for the you know lucasfilm of old and he's now working for disney and there is a difference isn't it? disney lucasfilm is a part of the disney uh machine and so it is a different system but his lineage and his sort of thread comes from those days it's it's the difference between somebody wanting to tell a star wars story in the star wars world respecting how that works and then wanting to come in and tell their story in Star Wars and change what Star Wars is and obviously you've got to have change and you look through all of the nine movies and what we knew in okay I suppose you look at it in the in the order it was made so you look at Star Wars and they look at Empire and Kirshner brings different things in and and it, it expands and then Marquand who gets nowhere near as much respect as you should for Jedi he expands it more and but also the filmic way of, of shooting it George went and did different things on the prequels and the directors on the sequel trilogy have done different things again and it's like it's all part of the language and it expands it but you want somebody to come in and and tell a Star Wars story whilst respecting the the feel and the vibe of Star Wars and but not being constricted by it. I, I think you can have certain parameters that if you stray outside of it it doesn't feel like a Star Wars film anymore but that's not constraining. That's like you've got all this space within that to tell an amazing Star Wars story that you can riff off this and talk about that. And you just said something I hope that it comes true at some point and, and may turn out to be a, a masterstroke of vision <laughs> from you. It's like, yeah, if they did a live-action Star Wars solo TV series and they got mm. Tyker in to direct some episodes of that or, or you know, he's the Deborah Chow for that series and he does the whole damn thing, 
that would be a perfect marriage because Solo always had, especially the Brian Daly Solo books, had that sort of quirky, slightly odd, left of centre feel about them. Very sort of, yeah. you know what I mean? It had that kind of touch about it. Everybody pretty much knows that George was into his comic books and into TV serials and, you know, Flash Gordon and stuff like that. And I think we do sometimes, as a fan base, we get so deep into kind of thinking about the minutia of Star Wars that actually we sometimes we just need to take a step back and enjoy Star Wars. Yeah. And for Star Wars, we have not necessarily what we didn't get or what we want to get and what we should get. And I think sometimes it's, that, it's finding that balance, isn't it, of like you want to be able to tell a story that is enjoyable and fun for everybody in it and who's watching it, but also that moves, let's say, the, the galaxy along a little yeah. bit. It would be like great if they just did a, let's say, a film set on a planet and there's just a couple of guys and there was no mention of the Force. Yeah. There was no mention of, let's say, the Empire or the destruction of the Death Stars or Luke Skywalker. And everything about it screams to you that this is set in Star Wars, yeah. but actually it says nothing about Star yeah. Wars. That would be, I think, the ultimate aim, really, would be to get something like that where actually you can have these stories which don't have to rely on callbacks or quote-unquote fan service or what have you, or Easter eggs. But yet, there's something about the DNA of it yeah. that makes it feel like Star Wars. You could almost do like a whole film and then just right at the end, just have like two stormtroopers that like walk past and then it's like, oh, actually we are in Star Wars. Yeah. You could definitely do something where all the obvious trappings of Star Wars aren't there. Mm. I think in the Star Wars galaxy, however many trillion, trillion, trillion people live in the Star Wars galaxy, I would, in my head, I'm thinking they're not all flying around the galaxy and doing this. It's not like that. It's probably 95% of people in the galaxy have never left their own planet. Yeah. Like here you know i would mm. imagine most people just live their life on corellia and just do their thing and if they want to travel or they've got relatives who live in on tatooine then they'll travel to tatooine like we travel to australia and it's like oh yeah you know, i might not be here again for 10 years and, and yeah most people either can't afford it because if you haven't got your own ship which i can't imagine everybody in star wars has their own ship they just can't because it's so expensive not only to buy but to run then they're doing trips like star tours type trips which is like us going on the, you know, the Queen Mary or something. It's an expensive game. So so travelling around the galaxy is easily accessible because every planet or most planets have starports. But it's not something like us hopping on an easy jet flight to Malaga or something. It's not that simple. It's So most people are just living their normal lives within the Star Wars galaxy. They'd know who the Emperor was, but, you know, they wouldn't know who Luke Skywalker was, a lot of them. You know, it's not in their wheelhouse. It's nothing to do with them. But that's just it. I mean, like you said, I suppose if you've got a star system with a couple of habitable planets, yeah. they might hop from one to the other. But, yeah, you know, it's probably very few people, unless it's for business or something that goes from Corellia to Coruscant, yeah. for instance. Yeah. So there's so much scope, you know, and, and we're just talking about, like, geographically. We're not even talking about from a timeline perspective and we haven't even gotten into like which era you know this series could be set in or this film could be set yeah. in because there's no kind of announcement there's no plans to say anything like that now but there's so much of that scope for that yeah. it'll be interesting and it's definitely a story to watch with great interest I think 
So that's all for episode 37 of Making Tracks. If you want to be part of the action and stay updated on all the latest Star Wars news, visit Fanthatracks.com or check out the Fanthatracks app through the App Store to follow us on your mobile. You can reach out to us and send any listeners questions by emailing radio at Fanthatracks.com. And we didn't do a listeners question today, but we will have one on the next episode. Please send in any questions. If you want to hear us chat and talk and pontificate and rabbit on about stuff, send your listeners questions in. So radio at Fanthatracks.com. Comment, like, and share on any of our social media feeds at Panthertracks, and be sure to subscribe, leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher or smart speaker of choice. Thank you again, Mark. Thank you for another wonderful episode. Ah, oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, and uh, stay safe, my friend. I will do my best, and uh, we'll catch you all next time. Coming up next on Panthertracks Radio, it's Desert Planet Discs.